When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. The Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dan Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Welcome back to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Andy Wilson, joined by Dane Clark. Hey, Dane, how you doing? Hi, Andy. Doing great, sir. And Hugh Syme. How's it going, Hugh? It's going well. Thank you, Andrew. Awesome. Joining us today on the Music Buzz Podcast is the legendary drummer for the Yardbirds, a band who was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1992. He was also in Renaissance and other bands. Uh, Jim McCarty. The Yardbirds currently uh, features a lineup of innovative and legendary musicians, notably, of course, uh, their drummer, leader, longtime singer, co-founder Jim McCarty, amongst others in the band. A great band, and we'll get into the, the current version of the band uh, with Jim when we talk to him. Since the Yardbirds' uh, birth uh, from 1963 to 68 originally, and then its reformation in 2003, the group has been known for its incredible guitarists in, in some ways as well, obviously uh, having had Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, and Jimmy Page through the ranks over the years, uh, plus um, other members of the bands that are a critical part of the band's history. Uh, Jim continues to lead this innovative British rock band that provides the crucial link between British R&B, psychedelic rock, and heavy metal, while pioneering the use of innovations like fuzz tone, feedback, and distortion. The drummer-singer-songwriter is responsible for its haunting sound. They were inducted by U2's The Edge into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Uh, we're thrilled to welcome to the Music Buzz podcast today, uh, the legendary Jim McCarty. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. Lovely to, uh, lovely to talk to you. Jim, I'm uh, very honored to uh, be looking face-to-face with you here and doing this podcast today. Uh, I'm a huge British Invasion fan, and uh, the Yardbirds are 
one of the greatest bands of all time in my eyes and, and most of our eyes. Uh, and to start with, you were about 20 years old when the Yardbirds formed back in uh, 1963. And uh, your uh, Live at the Marquee Club record came out in 64. Um, can you tell us about your life leading up to that? Um, where you first started playing drums? And I don't know if you've always played guitar and sang too, but when you first started doing that and uh, say the first band that you played in. Uh, yeah, I, I, I started uh, drums by playing the, just the snare drum in a, in a military organization called the Boys Brigade. You probably, I don't know whether you have that in the US, but it was like a marching band, you know, with bugles and drums and things. I did the same thing. I loved it playing those, those those sort of snare drum things, those rolls and all, all those sort of what what are they called drags and all that stuff. Um, I I really enjoyed it, and then I gradually went from there to um, to hearing early American rock and roll, you know, Buddy Holly and the Crickets and uh, Gene Vincent, early Elvis and all that. And we had a, a school band. And uh, Paul Samuel Smith, uh, who became the bass player eventually in the Arbors, he was in the school band, but he played lead guitar in those days. He like played a Fender Strat, you know, an early Fender Strat. Awesome. And we played all those songs at the local uh, local pub, you know, for the school. And all the school guys would come down uh, with their girlfriends and uh, have a, a mad evening. And um, then we play in the in the intervals in the school dances and everyone would go mad and <laughs> we'd play like Johnny Cash and uh, Elvis stuff and it was great fun and um, it wasn't until a few years later that I met Paul again and he said oh you've got to come around and hear this this is this is really interesting this this music and it was Jimmy Reed live mm -hmm. at the Carnegie Hall and uh, I thought, well, this is this is great. It's like sort of rock and roll, but it's got an element of something else to it. You know, it's got a it's got a real edge, a real soul to it, a real emotion. And we went from there, and we listened to, to Howling Wolf and um, Chuck Berry and all those, but it votedly. And then we used to go and see the Stones because they played in our uh, neck of the woods in southwest London, out in Richmond. Um, and they played at this club called the Crawdaddy, uh, and we used to go and see them. And then we, you know, decided to form a band. Um, and to cut a long story short, we, we, we had a band, and we went to the the, the manager of the, the Crawdaddy Club, who's, who was called Giorgio Gamowski, who was a very strange sort of, you know, beard, bearded multicultural guy. And he was the... He was looking for someone to take over from the Stones because they got too big for the club, and so we said, "Oh, come and see us!" And uh, so he booked, he booked us up, and we took over their residency. And so you know, it went from there. Well, that's awesome! Take over from the Stones <laughs> right at the beginning yeah. of the of the deal. There, I'm curious from that residency at the club. How were you? officially discovered and how did you move the bar up even higher to become the Yardbirds we know what we became to know then on Ready Steady Go and Top of the Pops and shows like that well actually George has stepped I mean he he missed out with the with the Stones he wanted to be their manager 
Uh, <laughs> and he missed the missed the boat because uh, Andrew Oldham sort of pipped pipped him, and uh, so he, he he got us. He he, he managed us. I see. And uh, we went from there, and um, there, he he got us a record deal with EMI. And in those days, you you had a choice between Decca and EMI. They were only like the two big big record companies. And the Stones were on Decca, so Giorgio said, oh, well, I'll, uh, I'll sign you to EMI. Yeah. And we went from there. But uh, the thing is with the live album, we never really managed to get our sound when we went in the studio. We never had the right, really the right song until a bit later on. I always wondered why you guys chose to do that. To, to, and so that's why you chose to do a live record, which must be surely the first time yes. a, a yeah, rock yeah, band yeah. ever did that was the Yardbirds, right? I mean, I can't think of any other bands that had their debut as a live performance. It's awesome. Well, we got such a, when we played in the clubs and stuff, we got such a great atmosphere. Right. And it was so exciting. Um, but we could never get that in, in, in a regular studio. So we decided to do the, the live thing. I, I went back through you guys' catalog the last couple of days and just had a ball doing it. And I was going through... Uh, from that first, from that record, um, uh, I'm a man and smokestack lightning and your time, those songs are long because they're like, geez, smokestack lightning's like seven minutes long or something. And I, and I yeah, was yeah. listening to it and I thought, you know, I'm just going to check this. And the tempo of the song stayed perfect for seven minutes with all the dynamics that, you know, the double times and the going real soft and going real loud, man, I just got to commend you. What a fantastic <laughs> feel you've got. I never realized that. Oh, yeah, well, it's an easy thing to do when it's on YouTube. You can just kind of go up, and it was just, like, astonishing how in the pockets you were. All right. <laughs> <laughs> got a kick out of it, man. So cool. So, well, let me ask you this. So, um, Clapton was a guitar player at that point, and, you know, after that record, you guys really kind of shifted gears you know, kind of for the rest of your the career in the 60s i would say with a different sound i mean for your love i mean that your your live record was all guitars and and harmonica and and drums and bass and all of a sudden the two main instruments that you hear loudest on the track are harpsichord and bongos so that's <laughs> quite a that's quite yeah. a stylistic shift and uh you know and as you kept going heartful of soul and in shapes of things which is my personal favorite wow just so good with your bolero drumming. And I stole your lick uh, on a Mellicamp record. I, I can't remember which song it was, but da -da -dum, da -da -dum, to bring right. back the verses. Yeah. So thank you. <laughs> Gave me a great idea there. But my, I guess I'm getting, I'm just trying to, uh, I wanted to ask you how, um, how that shift happened with going to a more pop and adventuresome and, and really psychedelic uh, edged sound. Well, I, th I think it's like most things like that. It was like an accident, you know. We were looking for the right song, uh, and um, we tried various bluesy songs, but it never really worked, and it wasn't really commercial enough. And then someone came along with with that demo of uh, "For Your Love." They they actually saw us playing with the Beatles. We played at one of their Christmas shows, in 1964, in London, Hammersmith. And they saw us playing, and they just thought, For Your Love would suit us. 
and we all had a listen to it, you know, around Giorgio's apartment. And we said, oh, that, you know, that's a, that's an interesting song. It's very different and very moody, and we could do a do our arrangement of it, and uh, it, it worked well, except for Eric, who. Um, who thought it was wandering too far away, you know, from the blues that we'd been playing. And, uh, and you know, combined with other problems he had with the, with the band, he, he decided to leave. Were the bongos your idea? <laughs> well, uh, no, that no, was on the original, actually, because it was written by Graham Goldman. Oh, wow, yeah. A 10cc guy, yeah. And Hollies. Uh, he wrote a bus stop and all those tunes. Yes, he wrote, yeah, Look Through Any Window and uh, things like that. Yeah. And he was uh, an up-and-coming young guy. He was a couple of years younger than us, and he was from Manchester. Mm-hmm. And the bong goes on his demo, so we, you know, we, we, did the, we did the bongo. Dane was just referring to kind of how you can discover so much on YouTube and in my in my uh, rambling through YouTube today, I, I, I stumbled on a video, and I'm not sure if this is, a, is an excerpt from a movie that you guys were featured in, or if it was actually one of the earliest sort of filmic, you know, cinematic videos intentionally made as a video by the Yardbirds. I, I, Beck and Paige were in it. Um, stroll on. Stroll on, yeah. Yeah. But it looked, the boy comes into the warehouse and there's a whole kind of group of, you know, like it's just kind of like a, a, like a mosh-up. And the amp starts to malfunction for Beck. Um, <laughs> yes. and, and, and that's where he starts slamming his guitar. Was that all kind of built for the Yardbirds or was that an excerpt of you guys in another production? No, no, no. We were, that was an Antonioni. Ah, uh, you know the the, the Italian um, film director, and um, he wanted to do a film about sixties London. Ah, okay. He, he was fascinated with sixties London, so um, I, I think he, he he probably wanted the Who before us because they used to smash up their guitars on stage. I see. He sort of liked that, you know, that that sort of rebellious thing going on. As an excerpt, it felt so much like a an eighties video. It just worked. <laughs> <laughs> it did work. It was a very odd thing because all those people were just standing there, like you know, zombies watching us. People, <laughs> people didn't do that. They 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 jumped around the whole time, you know. And it's the whole movie's odd. Blow up if you've never seen it. Check it out. It's really a trip. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> But I'm glad we did a film like that rather than like a silly film, you know. Yes, right. Very strange. But it was, it, it, and also the other thing was that they did it over like five days. Uh-huh. That very short, that, it, that short clip. It took five oh, days. Oh, wow. We're just doing that, you know, endlessly. You just kept playing that song over and over. <laughs> <laughs> endlessly. Oh, man. <laughs> That's very funny. Well, did. <laughs> Did did Jeff Beck keep breaking a bunch of guitars every day, or was that just? Yeah, they gave they gave him some to practice on. Oh, really? Oh, so okay. Wow. I guess practice makes perfect. Cheap, cheap cheap acoustics just to smash. (laughs) Okay, that's great. I wondered about that. The Yardbirds, to me, as a fan of, of 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 rock music, have always really stuck out uniquely because a lot of times when you think of certain bands over the years, you know, you say, "Oh, they're." 
they're a blues-based rock band or they're a pop rock band or they're whatever. You guys, to me, were always interesting or are interesting because, you know, you had this mix of, you know, blues and then pop and then this just this, you know, kind of wild, you know, experimental kind of vibe that really influenced so many bands in different ways afterwards. I mean, as I was looking through things, a lot of times when you see like you read about a band and you see their influence, you're, oh, that makes sense. And you guys, it's like, you know, and we'll talk a little bit later uh, about, you know, um, the project you did with, with that Hugh was involved with, with Terry and, and Alex from Rush. And then, you know, you've got these other influences, like, you know, I mentioned earlier, The Edge from U2 inducted you guys. You guys cover the gamut. And obviously, you know, we got Dane on the podcast here, who plays the drums with John Mellencamp. So you got all of this element of, of inspiration and influence that you just covered the whole gamut. And I can't, I, I'm hard pressed to think of, too many other bands that have influenced those pockets so specifically. Was, was, yeah. was that purposeful? Is that just what happened? Or is it a combination of all your influences and the, the kind of music you guys liked at the time and now? But I, you know, for me, it sort of started with R&B covers and then it developed because we wanted to make, make a sound our own or, or we wanted to have fun ourselves without playing like 12 bar sequences. Sure. Uh, or playing the song as as it as it w was, you know, the same. Mm -hmm. As soon as we got Jeff Beck in the band, he was very very experimental because he, he he would use all sorts of sounds. With all of the R and B and and the the rock interests that you had, and it's not that I don't understand this because I certainly think a lot of great musicians can play the gamut and they have interests in in melancholic and more folky music but when i look at your last solo album and its feel and also annie um haslam from renaissance and that whole band's feel um you you obviously had an interest in that music to be a part of all of that where did that come from where did that <laughs> where did that fascination with english rock i mean i look at pink floyd for example i think the underpinning of a lot of pink floyd is english folk music even though it's yeah. very yeah yeah yes yeah. i would, i i always love that singer songwriter thing you know where you uh you, you know you play the guitar and play play a nice tune and um and and what what you did on that album, you you really made it. You you really brought out the Englishness of those songs. I thought it made it really, uh, <laughs> you know, which which I loved. It really was like being in an English countryside. Some of that stuff. You know, Terry never said exactly. He may have mentioned your name, and I didn't really catch it. But he said, "Yes, lovely fellow. He's living in the south of France now." Um, or he mentioned that you were in the south of France and. Lovely singer-songwriter, beautifully sort of exposed and, you know, sensitive music. Thought I might be interested in doing some string work and some guitar work. And I did. I think if I had known it was you, I would have, I would have been intimidated. So <laughs> until much later, I didn't realize I had been working with, with a Yardbird. <laughs> well, Terry said, Terry said, yeah, well, he's going to have a go. And I thought, well, Hugh does the... He does the covers, you know, for Rush. Well, yeah. <laughs> well he does, does he do arranging? <laughs> but it was great, you know, did a great job. Well, I love working on it. It was a fabulous uh, experience. And which record was this? Oh, this was my latest solo. Uh, okay. Record. Walking in the Wildland? Yeah. Okay. 
Awesome. Which I did sort of based <clears throat> very much based on the inspiration uh, around here, you know, because there's some wonderful, wonderful wild land around here um, that I love. And that was, um, that was how, you know, all these songs came about. And uh, We did three, I think, wasn't it? Changing Times, Dancing, yes. Dancing Leaves, and what was the other one? Uh, so, so many questions. Yeah, so many questions. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, but so many questions. That can also be the theme for this podcast, too, ironically, right? Yes, <laughs> certainly is. <laughs> Just kidding. It's appropriate. We are voyeuristic, inquisitive, um, geeky rock fans. So <laughs> That's right. Well, I mean, uh, you know, it's true. There are so many questions about life, aren't there? Um, you know, where do you, where do you stop? It? What, yeah, what's it all about? What's going on? I've always been like that, you know, questioning things, digging into things and trying to find out what's going on on a deeper level, you know. And I think some of that comes out in that, in that album. Yeah. I'm looking forward to hearing that. I, I did hear uh, Come Around the Corner. That's a beautiful oh, yes. ballad. I love your voice. Sounds yes, great, man. Yes. It, it, it works well. I mean, it's quite different, obviously, to the Yardbird stuff, but uh, um, it's very difficult to um, to to push the arbors forward with it with new material um because you you know you have to live up to all the you know the shapes of things and the heart full of souls and all that you know it's a fantastic sure. repertoire oh no question and it's very difficult to, very, very difficult to say oh, oh i've got 10 new songs for the arbor i mean it's that's i think that's the bane of any any band who's had a success especially if they've got one specific style of hit you know, the fans' expectations. So I think a band has the option to say, let's keep progressing and let's not be tethered to that one hit or let's just dare to be different as you move forward. That's, I think, the real key to being interesting, not just becoming a formulaic, you know. Yes. Well, I got to say, I saw you guys in the whole Mellencamp band came to see the Yardbirds in 2003 at the House of Blues in New York City. Oh, you were and there, we yeah. were we were blown away. You just come out with the Birdland record. I believe it was 2003 when we were there. We were there for a week to do uh, TV shows and stuff, and we got tickets to see. And it was just, it was incredible. The new songs from that record were really good on that record. I, we all thought, and and the old stuff was just played and sung fantastically. Just got to say, and sound great too. I, I listened to For Your Love this morning at that gig, and uh, yeah. Yes, it was a good. Uh, it was a good idea. I mean, it was all uh, Steve Byer was a great guy, and uh, he was behind it all. And uh, oh wow, it was great to do uh, some new songs combined with the with, with the old songs with with guests on uh, on the tracks, you know. And sure. uh, they, they took they took those songs in little slightly different directions, which was fun. It was, it was yeah, a good album to do. So that, that begs the question, what guitar player haven't you played with? I mean, you honestly, and, and no joke, but is there a guitar player you haven't played with? You're like, man, I would love to record with this guy. You know what I mean? Is it, is it <laughs> oh, of, I see. Do you, do you have a wish list? Because the people you played with are like the dream wish list for so many artists, right? For anyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I never played with Hendrick, okay. I must say. He, he would be an obvious one, I guess. Right. And... uh you know, Stevie Ray Vaughan. I, I suppose you know. There's quite a few great guitar players I never, I never even met. But, sure, uh, cool. 
So who do you listen to now? Who's who, who are your great influences in terms of you know? Oh, well, all sorts of music now. I don't know. Yeah. All sorts of uh, you know world music or or classic yeah. or, or um, you know obviously the old blues and the, you know the Jimmy Smith and all that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. But, but all sorts of stuff. Yeah, uh, all sorts of folk music and. Uh, Actually, I did quite like Lorena when she when she was uh, McKennett. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me actually. No. <laughs> well, that that that's plays to your Celtic and English roots. Yes, yes, I I, I enjoyed her. She's got a, a great voice. Oh yeah, and, and her band is formidable. Her her band's yeah, lovely. fantastic. But I don't think they they uh, they have a bit of a hard time with her, don't they? With, you know, with her, oh yeah, I hear, I hear she's quite a handful. Yeah, <laughs> bit, bit strict with them, just disciplinarian. Yeah. Oh, that's well. If she's got a vision, you know. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. But she's very good. She's done really well. And so, wait, when you play with the Renaissance, who who are you with? I was with a band. We were actually on the same label as Rush and another band from Toronto called Max Webster. Speaking of great singer songwriters, Ian Thomas. Um, was the fellow who invited me to play keyboards in his band. It became the Ian Thomas band, but uh, he went on to f uh, have a phenomenal band called the Boomers as well with uh, Rick Grattan on drums, uh, Peter Cardinelli on bass, and and Bill Dillon, very creative guitarist with work with Robbie Robertson and uh, Joni Mitchell and all kinds of interesting people. You would like Bill. He, he's pretty fabulous. Oh, great. And is yeah. that how you met Terry? How did you meet Terry? Well, I met Terry in the studio. I, I, I was um, coming in to discuss the 2112 album um, with Rush, and that was the same day he said, do you want to play on the album? So I went down the hall with my Mellotron. You know, they had a Mellotron there, and I worked up some parts for one of Getty's more intimate folky songs called Tears, and then I played the opening um, it's what they call the overture for 2112, their first epic full side, you know, of the album. Yeah. yeah. Pretty indulgent stuff. But yeah. It was fun. <laughs> Terry's been wonderful. He's such a, a, a wonderful creative. Oh my God. You know, I, I herald him as the producer for Rush. Yeah. Yeah. I think I'll probably agree there. So what, what are you working on now? Are you, are you, uh, well, I, well, I, you know, my, my, my wife uh, passed, passed away. So I've been, it's been a tricky time. Uh, but I'm trying to get something shifted now and get some songs going. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I'm open to a few ideas coming in now. So excellent. Excellent. Jim, do you remember, you know, what was your first attended concert as a fan? Or, you know, if it's a couple of them, fine, but what were they? I went to see The Shadows because I was a big Shadows fan and we, we loved all their stuff, you know, Apache and all that stuff. And um, I remember going to see Joe Brown one night. He was great. He, and he started playing sort of Chuck Berry stuff. He was a rock and roll singer really uh, and then well what, what did i do you know go and see the stones and people like that um yeah now did you did you ever play with the beatles we, we played a one-off gig in in paris one time uh, at the palais de sport in 1965 and we were the supporting group and um 
of course, in those days, we we were sharing all the backline gear, mm-hmm. and I was playing Ringo's kit, and then we got to the end, and I was thrashing away at it, and I went right through his snare drum. Oh, dear. <laughs> Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> right, I'm the last and, and how did that go? <laughs> I thought, oh no, I've broken a snare drum. Uh, oh dear, what's going to happen? Uh, they, they're going to do me over us on it. And this is back in the days when they didn't have, you know, spare snares and. Yes. And, yeah. Yeah. That's right. But, but uh, yeah, I was I was let off the hook. You know, the the roadie, whoever he was, Mal Evans, I think his name was. Did you befriend? Now I'm sounding like a, a geek, a geek fan. But did you befriend the Beatles? Uh, we yeah, they were quite friendly. Yeah, they were friendly. In fact, um, we were looking for a hit when we played with them, and we thought they might have written a song for us, but they didn't. Uh, but um, John Lennon gave us a, a demo. Well, no, not a demo. He he gave us a record uh, of. Um, a singer called Chuck Jackson and it was a song called The Breaking Point uh, it was actually written by uh, Bert Bacharach oh wow yeah <laughs> but it didn't you know it was good but it you know it didn't didn't quite fit and then also Paul Paul um, played us what was going to become Yesterday oh no but he didn't have any lyrics but he, he played he sang the lyrics of, of Scrambled Eggs in those days yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and um, so he played the song, which was you know, came in our dressing room and said, "Have a listen," and uh, it, that was a magic, uh, magic moment. Yeah, I was going to say if we could all wake up from a dream with that kind of song at our fingers. <laughs> I know, wouldn't it be great? Yeah, <laughs> it'd be great. Yeah, yeah, everyone, everyone's idea of heaven. Well, you know, he wrote that in his dream, right? He told you, yeah. He heard the song in a dream and one of those rare times when you wake up and you retain. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's the only time he ever had that happen, but what a payoff, eh? <laughs> yeah, it was quite funny, actually, because he said, oh, we, we get all our songs from other people, you know, we, we, we pinch up other people. There's definitely cross-pollination. You can hear that. Look at 64, you know, it's a George Formby song, you know? Yes. I remember seeing footage of George Formby playing in a raccoon skin coat with a straw boater hat, singing naughty songs to the troops, like swimming with oh, the yes. wind. When I'm cleaning windows. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just that that tempo and that whole kind of arrangement with kind of ukulele simplicity, um, that that was the, the underpinning of When I'm 64. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. One, one question we'd like to ask everybody is, can, do you remember the first gig where you actually got paid? And can you tell us about that? <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's always the reaction we get to. Everybody kind of laughs a little bit. I don't know if we got paid in the school group. Maybe we did. I, I don't remember. It's not something I can remember, you know, getting paid. Mm-hmm. Quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're telling me you've never been paid. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, I don't know. To, to me, it, was, it wasn't sort of a, the important thing. Uh, sure. Well, I, I still think the the impetus for good craft, good music, good art is is the love of doing it. And if the other, you know, if the other fortunes and and good luck comes your way, then that's even better. But yes, yes, if it if it pays off, that's a that's a bounce, really, isn't it? Yeah, 
Absolutely. I did. I did have some questions for you, Jim, about pertaining to. Uh, I have a record that's pretty rare. I think from it was recorded live in 1968 somewhere in America. Um, the Yardbirds with with Jimmy Page and you guys do. Uh, you do two songs that uh, that would later be in Led Zeppelin's repertoire, which were. It was. It's called "I'm Confused" on the record which ended up being dazed and confused. And then he did white summer, which he used to do, which he did yeah. later on in live appearances, Led Zeppelin. Yeah. So I was going to ask you about that and, and what happened there at the end for, I know he went out as the new yard birds for a while. Um, and just, can you, do you have a little bit you could, uh, you could help us with on that? Yeah. I, I, it, it was a time where we uh, were, were, were a bit lost as to, what we were going to record next uh, as a single, okay. um, and the the um, the market was very much orientated around your your latest hit single all the time, and that became very difficult for us in the end, especially when we changed uh, lineups. You know, when we just had Jimmy and Chris, Keith, and myself, it wasn't quite the same as when we had Paul and Jeff in the band. You know, the creative. Uh, uh, impulse wasn't so great um but we still you know we still wrote songs but we didn't we couldn't come up with a hit and so we went to we made a dreadful mistake and we went to mickey most who's uh, the big producer of those days who had hit after hit you know uh, uh, sure donovan and, and it, all those people and it didn't really work with us uh we he just is that the little games record well, the little games and some of the other records, you know, the unmentionable singles we did with him, um, you know, "Ha Ha," said the clown, and all that stuff, you know. Yeah. And he was he was so such a dictator that you had to sort of go along with it, you know, um, which was unfortunate. Uh, so the group didn't get much of a say. Um, so we were looking for songs, um, and one night we played in New York with this songwriter called Jake, Jake Holmes, who was like a folk singer. He was a New York guy, um, uh, and he was playing his stuff. And, you know, as you do, you wander backstage, side stage, and have a look now and then. And then I heard him playing this, this just like descending riff song, and, and that was actually dazed and confused. And, yeah. and, I thought, and I thought, oh, that, you know, that's a moody sort of song that would suit mm. us. Um, so I went down and bought his record uh, from, you know, Bleecker Street or wherever it was, some record store <coughs> in Greenwich Village. And um, we did our version uh, as a more sort of rock version. Um. And then uh, Zeppelin w went on to use it in their in their act. It was one of their one of their big songs. And then there was you know yeah, it did okay <laughs> a long a long copyright battle going on. I was going to say, I bet there was. <laughs> so I bet Jake is going. Hey guys, this was my song at one point, and uh, yes, yes, yeah, but sure. uh, I mean, uh, the end of the story was he he did do a. He did do a, some sort of deal, and, Good. Uh, got it got it straightened out. But I don't know how far back. I don't know how much money he'd lost. Sheesh. But that album in '68, that 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 was really uh, 
that was remixed by Jimmy uh, relatively recently, probably three or four years ago, and it, it, it came out again. And it's called Yard the Live Record. Did the Yardbirds Live? Yeah. No kidding. I've got to get that. It's called Yardbird '68. <laughs> so you can find that remixed, and and, and actually. In those days, I thought we were sort of dying as a band, and we'd we'd more or less lost it. But um, that that album sounds pretty good to me. I thought that record was. I've always thought it was one of your best records. I thought you guys were great live. Yeah, yeah, it sounded good. So it wasn't the sound of a dying band, really. Not at all. But when you moved on to uh, in. Anybody who's listening to this podcast needs to check out the band Renaissance if they don't know who they are. It's uh, your first record, which came out in 69, I think. I mean, when you think back to the other prog bands, because you guys were definitely a, just a prog band. I mean, your first tune on that first record is it Kings and Queens is like 15 minutes long or maybe not that long, but very long going through all different kinds of time changes and feel changes. The only record I can think of, the only other band that was doing something like that was before Emerson, Lake and Palmer would have been that first King Crimson album, maybe. Yes. But, and, and the Moody Blues. Yeah. Yeah. But not that Moody Blues weren't doing stuff like this. This, that, they were kind of more Beatle progressive. These guys were time changes. Uh, okay. Total different songs all kind of melded into one. It's, Everybody well, should there's, do a few, there's a few reasons for that. I think it, we, we didn't have to do a hit single for a start. Yeah, we could do a whole album and do it as we wanted. <clears throat> and um, John Hawk and the keyboard player, he, you know, uh, like like all sounds, it was a bit of an accident. He suddenly started playing um, classical, some sort of classical piece. Uh, and we said, "Oh, great! You know that 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 really fits in well. Let's leave that in." Which it was like a bit of a hodgepodge, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. And and that became like uh, you know the basis of a of, of a great prog sound. It certainly did. And then that and that sound went on, went on and on, and still going now with with that band. So, uh, um, yeah, yeah, it was it was an accidental prog band. <laughs> Well, you guys, yeah, I mean, that, that just goes to show that if the band's still alive, I mean, you guys, you guys spearheaded that thing and started that sound. Um, so I'm just going to tell listeners here, if you, if, if you're a fan of Emerson, Lake and Palmer and early, yes. And, and even Jethro Tull and bands like that, they, you should listen to Renaissance. Those are really cool records. People should go back and, and rediscover that music. I think it's great. The first one particularly was, yeah. was good. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And you co-wrote, you were co-writer on both of those records on yeah, every song, yeah. I believe. Yeah, Keith and I did all the did all the songs and then the guys, you know, were just in the arrangement and uh, you know, there was com complex arrangements going on and it was all it was all we spent a long time just playing it live, you know, rehearsing. I think that was the key as well. We put an awful lot of effort into it. You know, playing it around my house, you know, <laughs> with the band set up every day. Um, sure. To get that sound. And we worked on playing for an hour live without stopping. So, uh, you know, eventually we went out on the road and we, we did the hour that we'd worked on. <laughs> it went down a storm, of course. 
Well, I'm sure it did. I mean, that had to take it. That just goes to show tenacity and, and good hard work. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how much you guys like punched in and stuff on records back then, but it sounds like you played that thing straight through Yeah, that we, first track on there. Yeah, we, yeah. we had it. We had it there, really. You know, it was just a formality to get that on record as it was. Right. Well, that's fantastic. So everybody should go back and listen to that. And there's another uh, project you did in the nineties with one of my favorite bands, a big Phil May pretty things fan. Uh, mm. you were part of the, uh, pretty things, Yardbirds blues band. You guys did a couple of records in the nineties. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that was, that was fun. I, I, w I was just playing in London in a sort of bluesy band. I just decided, uh, no, I like to play in a blues band again. And that was the, uh, really what propelled me to restart the the yardbirds again but um um some some guy called george paulus turned up from chicago and it was a big pretty things fan and he said he said oh to me he said oh i want to make a a blues band with, with phil and dick, a blues record with phil and dick from the pretty pretty things and uh we'd like you to play play with us and we do it in Chicago. <laughs> so we did it. We did oh, it in wow. a Chicago studio, and uh, you know we had all the all that all that Chicago sort of vibe about it, and uh, and they were all good old blues covers. Uh, that was right. good fun. Yeah, it was it's they're, they're cool records too. People should check that out. It's great vibe. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I always enjoyed playing with those guys. You know, they they, they were great. I, I always liked the pretty things. You know, looking looking at the whimsical sculpture on Birdland um, album, there's definitely there's a nicely selfie-facing simplicity that you know is a bit like the Revolver album. Though I, I'm sure Klaus Vorman, who drew that, um, was delighted to have that on a Beatles album. It, it, it was very much the trippy drawing style of the time. So when I look at uh, Roger the engineer, that's a very very it's it's somewhere between a five-year-old in Picasso. It's fabulous. <laughs> yeah. Or a five-year-old Picasso. They yeah. Both, but both of those albums had a lot to do with Chris Dreyer, who, who was in the band. Okay. Yeah, I mean, he, he did that. He did that Roger the Engineer um, drawing on the front. That was, uh, it's actually, actually, it was based on a, um, when we were on tour one time, we, we saw, um, we were in an airport and we saw a, a guy in, in um, uh, army uniform because he he come back from Vietnam or something, and he, he looked quite funny. And and Chris said, I think it was like a bit of a piss take. He said, "Oh, can I take a take a photo of you?" Because Chris was always taking photos. Mm -hmm. Took a photo of this guy, and he was called the Private Forbus. And uh, and that's sort of what 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 that that figure on the front of it is based on this, this guy, this American soldier. There was this sort of it looked like a, a steam driven time machine. Computer. Yeah, and and he worked it into a sort of uh, yeah, sort of almost like a mad scientist. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the Birdland album was where we were we were touring in Germany. And we were in. We were playing in a in a um, in a town that w that had sort of lots of um, art studios and things going on. And we walked into one of them, and they had this um, 
they had this uh, event going on, this <coughs> exhibition of these uh, sculptures, and they were actually sculptures, those things. Were they, they tabletop or quite large? You can't tell. They, from were, the big, they were big metal sculptures, you know, quite, quite big, um, made by this sort of German guy. Yeah. Um, um, and Chris photographed them all and, 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 then, and then put them on the album cover. You know, they were, they were really quite, quite big, but quite in innovative. Yeah, that's the thing. I, it, but I think as well as they were innovative, they were also, um, they had a nice sense of urgency and simplicity, you know, as opposed to trying too hard and becoming too heavily conceptual. They were really, I, th I think, charming just in, in spite of themselves. And it was a little bit like, you know, screw art, let's dance, you know, let's, let's play music. You know, the art was cool, but yeah. the music was so much more important, you know. <laughs> but we, uh, yeah, it was funny because we, we carried on with the tour. Oh, oh no, we, we went back with the tour after the album to Germany. And the guy used to come around following us on the gigs, you know, trying to sell his sculptures. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Putting them on stage. <laughs> Well, you know, the American version of that record was just a picture of you guys on the cover. It was, it, I believe it was over, under, sideways, down, it was called. Oh, really? You know how the... Well, the yeah. Bird, the, the Birdland. No, the Birdland was a lot... No, I, I'm I'm, I was gonna, I'm going back to the Roger the Engineer and, and, and oh, that. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yes, exactly. Because all, all the American records, just like the Beatles and the Stones, they'd come out with different songs, different yeah, that's pictures right. on the cover. Yes. And I mean, I can see it in my head because I've got the record. I, I was looking, I've got 4,000 albums, so I couldn't find my little Yardbirds section yesterday. But I believe that's just over, under, sideways, down is the same record as Roger and yeah. Roger it, it finally morphed into in, into Roger the Engineer. They decided to morph it into that title um, because it was more, you know, it was more apt because of the cover. When I look at the Little Games uh, cover, sort of kind of a psychedelic vibe, was there an intentional kind of correlation between that album and? So, and uh, Yellow Submarine, or was that well before Submarine? I forget what year it came out. But no, I think it was based on um, Little Games. Was one of one of Mickey's songs, you know, that he had from a songwriter, right? Uh, that that he, he he suggested we did. Well, he, he said he told us to do it. Yeah, okay, <laughs> and, yeah. and that was probably the best of his the best of his ideas. Yeah, uh, and then uh, I don't know who it was, but somebody decided to make it into a, like a casino type cover. You know, I see the game games and casino type of thing. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, okay, yeah. It, it had a bit of a Peter Max feel to it. Just you know. yeah, I thought it was quite a good idea. Yeah, yeah, I thought it worked quite well, probably because I was in the front. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> He says, with no degree of modesty, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Ha ha having been sort of trapped in the rear of the stage, which was so, uh, you know, that was so typical of any band from the 60s. You, you, oh, okay. The drummer's in the back, you know. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yes. Very true. Right. Yes, that's right. And a long way back. It was usually too far back because you couldn't really hear anything. So, Jim, I was going to ask you, who were some of your favorite drummers, other guys that were playing the same time that you were? Oh, oh yeah. Well, Keith Moon was very good. Keith Moon and Ginger Baker. You know, they were the best. Um, uh, Keith, Keith was, was very energetic, but, you know, he took, 
he was taking the pills, you know, out the top. That'll help you get moving. <laughs> yes, he had a secret. And um, <laughs> and I played his kit one time. Um, really? Uh, yeah. So, um, we were doing... He played Premier Drums. He yeah, played yes. Premier too. He did, and yeah. And we used the same kit. We were doing a TV show in, in Paris. And um, his his drums were covered in sort of blood. Because he smacked the drug, you know, he smacked everything so hard, and uh, wow. he was obviously taking medication. He couldn't really, uh, he, you know, he was he wasn't feeling any pain, but he was smashing those symbols and wow. and things and that, you know, there was he was there was a lot of blood, <laughs> blood on his drum. Wow. Wow. That's given your all for the performance, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, that that makes sense when when other heavy players like Townsend, apparently his fretboard and his guitars would get pretty bloody. Yeah, 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 yeah. I imagine that. I imagine that. Especially with their with their act, smashing them up. Well it's lovely to see you. Yes, like, and you. And yeah, I didn't realise you were gonna be on here. I thought we were just gonna talk about you. We talk about him all the time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was very excited to see you and talk to you today because Yes. We have history. <laughs> yeah, likewise. Yeah, very nice. Yes, that was nice. I didn't expect you to be on, so it's very nice. Nice surprise. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure I told you that um, the little cover band I played in when I was 13 in Sunderland, England, um, once I discovered that there was no shame in owning a set of premier drums, we did For Your Love and Heart Full of Soul. <laughs> Great. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well done. Yeah, I don't know how well done it was, but yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Jim, it was a pleasure talking to you, okay, sir. Okay, and you. Thank you. Uh, thank you for that. Absolutely. Thank you. And uh, take it easy. Okay, we're going to end this episode with a song from Jim McCarty from one of his solo albums, that album called Walking in the Wildland, which was produced by Terry Brown um, and also features um, our co-host, Hugh Simon. The tune is called Changing Times. Um, so enjoy this tune, and we'll catch you next time. Standing here on the bridge to changing times Sometime soon I will cross to changing times Every day it seems a thing
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.